Before we do that, though, Chris, uh, my voice is really loud in these, and it's very disconcerting. I don't like to hear myself. You can hear me, but I don't want to hear me. How's that? Well, uh, good morning again, and it is time for our message time. We are in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, you want to open those to chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. When we first began this journey through John, we learned that John includes in his gospel seven specific signs. These signs provide a window into how God is at work in the world through Jesus and what it means for our faith and our salvation. And you might remember that the first sign that John recorded was back in chapter two when Jesus changed the water to wine. And that sign showed that Jesus is Lord of nature and created things. And it was sort of his coming out party, if you will. And now in today's text, in John chapter four, verses 46 through 54, we come to the second sign provided by John, and that is the miraculous healing of a young boy who was near death. We're calling our message today, Healing at a Distance. Healing at a Distance. And this second sign shows us that Jesus is Lord of life. He's able to provide true life on the condition of faith. Well, in my experience, signs often follow decisions. One way that we can increase our spiritual momentum in life is by making decisions. And sometimes the tougher the decision, the better. The more potential momentum in our spiritual life it will produce. And I think maybe that one reason many of us don't see uh, God moving more is because we aren't moving. We aren't making decisions. If we want to see God move, we need to make a move. I learned this lesson in a somewhat dramatic fashion during my first ministry up in Portland, Oregon. This was nearly 30 years ago, maybe more than 30 years ago now. Our small church was looking for a way to reach out to our community, and we made a plan to launch a new Sunday service with contemporary music. Now, this was 30-plus years ago. And uh, so we began laying groundwork by praying for these plans. We had a desire, and we asked God to bless that. But we had one really big problem, and that was we didn't have any contemporary musicians. And in particular, we didn't have a guitar player or especially a drummer. And you can't do much contemporary music without a drummer. And so uh, our minister felt like we needed maybe to put some feet to our faith, if you will. And so he went out and he bought a brand new drum set. We didn't have anybody to play it, but he bought that drum set and he bought a bass guitar and an amp, uh, even though we had absolutely nobody to play those instruments. It was kind of a, a field of dreams moment, if you will. If you buy it, they will come. And so the instruments arrived a few late weeks later in the middle of a week. And then the very next Sunday, our church connected with a woman who had not set foot in church in nearly 30-some years. She hadn't been in a church building since her husband had passed away suddenly. But somebody had invited her to church. And she came that Sunday, and a few people got to know her. And pretty soon she learned of our musical plight. 
and she explained that her family was quite musical. In fact, before her husband passed away, they had a family band that had played all over the Portland area in clubs and bars all over the place. And so later that week, she brought her adult son and her adult daughter and a teen grandson to our midweek music rehearsal. And guess what? Her son was a drummer. And her teen grandson played the bass guitar. And her adult daughter played both guitar and keyboard and sang. And all of a sudden, we had a band. How about that? Isn't that cool? And they weren't just good. They were really good. And over the next several weeks and months, as they used their musical skills to lead in our new worship service, that lady and many of her family members were baptized into Christ. Isn't that a cool story? Rock and roll. How about that? <laughs> now, I can't promise that signs will follow your face in three minutes or three hours or three days. But when we take a step of faith, often signs will follow. God will sanctify our expectations. And more and more, we will learn to live our life with holy anticipation. What is God going to do next? And soon, if you fall into this practice of trusting in God in this way, you won't be able to wait to see what God is going to do next. Well, in our text today, we meet a man who takes some steps of faith as he looks for a sign from Jesus. So Jesus has returned to his home base area in the area of Galilee. And he comes and receives sort of a, a hero's welcome. And it is in the midst of this welcome that we find Jesus confronted with a man who has traveled quite a distance for that day to seek help from him. I want to invite you to read the first part of this encounter together with me. The words are on the screen in John 44, 46 through 50. Let's read these verses together. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Amen. The word of God. Well, Jesus is back in the same place where John recorded his first sign. There in the village of Cana in Galilee. The miracle of turning the water to wine. And here he meets what the text calls a nobleman. Perhaps your version calls him a royal official. This man was likely a Gentile of high standing, probably in the court of King Herod. His modern-day counterpart today, we might think of him like a, a White House chief of staff or presidential cabinet member or some important administrator of some uh, significance. And so this man would have been held in high regard. 
Of course, he was likely very wealthy, but none of this mattered. None of it mattered because the man's little boy was sick to the point of death. And more than likely, he had already summoned the best doctors and helpers to help that little boy, but to no avail. No one was able to help the child. Now, the man lived in Capernaum. Capernaum was a seaside fishing town, and it served often as the base of operations for Jesus. Jesus would often speak in the local synagogue in Capernaum. And so it's not hard to imagine that perhaps one of the locals tells this royal official about the miracles that this guy Jesus is doing around the region. Now, they couldn't help the man. The doctors couldn't help, but maybe this Jewish rabbi named Jesus could do something for this noble official. So in this second sign from John's gospel, John reveals that Jesus is Lord of life itself. He makes true life possible and available based on our faith. And like this royal official, our growing faith moves through various stages, if you will. Uh, And Jesus' encounter with this nobleman reveals these stages as we ask this question. How can we experience true, true life in Jesus? And so let's start with stage one. If you're following along on your outline, you can fill in the blanks if you like to do that. But stage one is a beginning faith. A beginning faith. To experience true life in Christ, we must begin with the first stage of faith, and that is a beginning faith. As Jesus enters into the city of Cana, this certain anonymous royal official, we never learn his name, but he approaches Jesus. And the man's actions demonstrate exactly, I think, what is involved in a beginning faith. And the first thing that we see when our faith begins is that there has to be a desperate need. A sense of a desperate need. The man's son is at the point of death. Now, any parent, any parent, any grandparent would understand the idea of desperate need when you think of a sick little child. Every human being confronts needs in our life, don't we? These severe needs come from all sorts of sources. Accidents, illness, diseases, broken relationships, suffering, the death of those close to us. You see, no one's exempt. It doesn't matter if you're a royal official in the government or the king himself. The day eventually will come when every single person needs help. And it is beyond our control to avoid these situations. And so we come to a place of desperate need. The second thing I want you to see is that there was hearing about Jesus. This man had heard about Jesus, and so he listened attentively to what he heard. He didn't turn a deaf ear to the message. He didn't think of himself as being too important or too uh, elite to listen to the message about this man, this rabbi called Jesus. He didn't think of the message as foolishness. 
someone took the time to share with him about this man Jesus and this government official listened. And so the official had a desperate need and then he heard about Jesus. And then the third thing I want you to note in this beginning faith is that there is a coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus, facing one of the most severe disasters you could imagine in the life of a parent, this man comes to Jesus. Jesus was the only person that he had heard about that might be able to help. And by the way, I want you to notice that this man had to make some sacrifices in order to go to Jesus. First, he had to leave the side of his dying son. Can you imagine how difficult that would be for a parent? Knowing that he would be gone for many hours, perhaps days, away from that child. Imagine the anxiety and fear that his son might die while he was away. And so the man, I imagine, literally would have had to tear himself away from the side of his son. But such an act shows how strongly he believed that Jesus could help him. The man also had to travel quite a distance to reach Jesus. Capernaum was about 20 miles from Cana. Now that's not far for us. We hop in the car and there we are. But back in those days, you walked or you rode a donkey or a camel. And going 20 miles took the better part of a day. And so imagine the concern and the apprehension gripping this father every step of the journey, wondering if he really should have left his son's side. And the fact that he persevered and kept his eye on the hope of Jesus, I think shows the growing faith in his heart. And then, the man didn't let his high position keep him from Jesus. He didn't wrap himself up in pride, nor did he allow what others thought or what others might say to keep him from Jesus. I think it shows great humility that this Gentile man of power and wealth and influence confessed his need in the face of a crowd of strangers to a simple itinerant traveling rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. And so this official has a need. And he hears about Jesus. And he comes to Jesus. And then the last step that we see in this beginning faith is that he begs Jesus for help. Look at verse 47. The English word begged in the original language means that he literally begged and kept on begging. This wasn't a one-time statement. I want you to picture a desperate father falling to the feet of a man he thinks may be able to help him. Please help my son. He begged and he kept on begging for Jesus to meet his need. You see, friends, faith in Jesus requires a beginning. A beginning. And you know there's a sort of a, a false sophistication and pride in our American ideal of making it on our own. I got this. I can do this. Hey, can I help you? No, I'm fine. Hey, do you need something? No, I got it. You know, we're proud of finding success or relief 
or completion through our own strength and ingenuity. We're raised to to live that way. But friends, if we want to find true life, it all begins with realizing we can't do it on our own. And that is the beginning of faith. A beginning faith. And then next I want you to see a persistent faith. The second stage of faith is persistent faith. And there's two crucial lessons that we see here. The first thing that we see is a a lesson in faith. The man went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And I want you to note Jesus' answer to this desperate man's begging. Because it seems just a bit cold, a bit disconnected. Jesus says to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It's almost like Jesus is disgusted with the guy. But I I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus wanted to reach that man and teach that man and the crowd that is watching and us that are reading this encounter many years later, I think he wants to teach us that his word alone is enough. Belief in his word was what was going to assure this man's request. Jesus' power was at the royal official's disposal if he would just believe Jesus. You see, belief must precede signs and wonders. And so how about you? Do you fully believe in Jesus? Is our faith persistent and ongoing? Or is it occasional when we fit Jesus into our plan and scheme? In verse 48, the word you, you, unless you see signs and wonders, is plural. You see, Jesus was not only addressing the man, but the crowd as well. He wanted the crowd to get this message. And you know, people are no different today. They might say they believe. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But until they experience a sign or a wonder or a healing for themselves, do they they really believe? And so we have to ask, is our faith and our belief consistent? Is it growing Or is it based solely on our physical circumstances? Sort of a, what have you done lately for me, Jesus? Kind of an attitude. Well, there's a second crucial lesson that we see here. And that is that the man has desperate insistence. Desperate insistence. He was in no position to argue, nor even to really think through what Jesus had just said. A severe disaster had stricken his family and his life. And he believed that Jesus was the only one who could help him. And he was determined to get Jesus to help. And so he cries out to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. He's desperate. And do you notice that the man doesn't allow Jesus' rebuke even to deter him. He just keeps after Jesus. And there's a couple of things I want us to notice here. And the first thing is that signs and wonders, in this case, the boy's healing, Those things are not as important as believing in Jesus. You see, behind all of this, a man's eternal salvation was at stake. And the man had to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. 
And then next, I want you to notice the man was helped because he persisted. He didn't give up. Persistence was absolutely necessary in securing the Lord's help. Persistence shows that we really recognize and acknowledge our need. And we really believe that God can and will help. It's not just a, well, I'll try this. Maybe this will work. Maybe Jesus can do something. No, there is a persistence. And here's something to remember. If a person quits asking, perhaps that shows that they really don't believe that God will answer. And often then people give up on God. And friends, this morning I want to say this to you. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on God because he never gives up on you. A beginning faith will lead to a persistent faith, which then leads to number three, a trusting, obedient, working faith. That's the third stage of faith. A faith of trust, of obedience, and of action. Jesus' charge to the man is go. Go, but then his promise is, your son will live. Do you see the action connecting with the promise? The man believed in Jesus' word, and he was obedient. The man, the text says, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And what we see here then is instantaneous faith in action. He believed immediately, and he turned immediately heading home to his son. He acted on his faith. Just what is it, do you think, that the man believed about Jesus in that moment? What do you think he believed? Well, here's just a few things that come to my mind. I think he believed in Jesus' love and compassion and concern. I think he believed that Jesus cared for those who had a desperate need like he had. And then I wonder, do you think he believed in, in Jesus' omniscience? It's a big fancy word that just means that Jesus knew the son was healed. Although he was 20 miles away. That's omniscience. And I believe the man believed in that omniscience. And then, here's another big word for you. God's omnipresence. And omnipotence. His omnipotence. Do you think that he truly believed that Jesus had the power to heal his son even from a great distance? I think he did. I think that's why he immediately turns and does what Jesus asks him to do, even though it doesn't make any sense. And friends, here's something important to remember. Sometimes when God calls us to do things in his word, it may not make sense to us. It might not jive with what we've learned in the past or what we assumed or what somebody else told us. But if it's in God's word, God calls us to trust it and be obedient to it and to do it. That is true faith. And then I want you to notice that both faith and obedience were necessary for this man to receive the promise and help of Jesus. The man wouldn't have received the help of Jesus if he had not first accepted and believed the word of Jesus. You know, if he had rebelled or act childishly and said, well, I'm not going to do that. I want you to come with me. Now, do we ever do that? The man easily could have acted like so many. 
when they bring needs to Jesus. Well, Jesus, here's what I want. Your, your word's not good enough. You know, I, I imagine, you know, if he was being rebellious, he would say, well, well my son's not healed. He's there in Capernaum and you're here far away. To, you're not close enough to him. How can he be helped unless you go to him? Come, show yourself, visit, stand before us, help him. And we do that, don't we? We argue with God in his ways. And we say, well, I think this way would be better if God would do it this way. Because we lack trust. Or we refuse to obey. Or we don't take the action that God calls us for. You know, we plead to God for help, as so many do. But if we just ask for God to help and then we dictate how God is to help, that's not the way it works. We don't get to dictate. And sometimes we're guilty of doing the same thing, aren't we? This encounter should remind us that no real faith exists apart from obedience and action. They go together. Is our faith in Jesus shaped by our personal opinions and ideas and preferences? Or is it shaped by his word? A trusting, obedient working faith. And this brings us then to the fourth stage of faith. The fourth stage of faith, if we are to experience true life in Christ, and that is a confirmed faith. A confirmed faith. Let's read this next part of the text together. Verses 51 through 53. The words are on the screen. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Amen. The word of God. I want you to notice those words in verse 51. As he was going. As he was going, he was literally in the act of obeying Christ when he received the glorious news that his prayers had been answered. And again, it was believing the promise of Jesus and obeying that brought him to the blessing. Both belief and obedience were essential. And then I want you to note that the man confirmed the supernatural versus the natural. He wanted to know the exact hour the boy recovered. He wanted to be certain. He wanted absolute confirmation. I think that's because he was reaching out for stronger faith in Jesus. He was so full of joy and thankfulness to Jesus that he wanted to believe in him more and more. He wanted confirmation of the glorious work that Jesus had done. You know, friends, we live in a culture of disbelief, don't we? We are trained to be skeptical, to not trust. After all, we know there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? But what if instead, what if instead we looked for confirmation to what we already believe and know to be true? What if instead of being skeptical or jaded or doubting, 
What if we eagerly looked for situations and opportunities and moments to see God at work in powerful and supernatural ways? What if we looked with expectation rather than suspicion? In 2013, there was an article in the New Yorker magazine about faith and belief. A man by the name of Adam Gopnik made the following confident uh, statement. He wrote, we know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention with the laws of nature. And then in the same article, Gopnik also concluded, we need not imagine there's no heaven. We know there is none. And we will search for angels in vain. Well, that was his thought. That was his idea. That was his preference, his leaning, his understanding. Well, a a pastor and author, a man by the name of Eric, Eric Metaxas, replied to that article and to those claims. And he wrote this. He said, of course the reason that Mr. Gopnik made these statements has to do with his presuppositions that this world is all there is. That way of seeing the world dismisses outright any possibility of anything beyond the material world of time and space. And then he went on and he wrote this. It says, it can be all summed up in the words of the late Carl Sagan, who glumly intoned, the cosmos is all there is and ever will be. Well, friends, if we are to experience true life In Jesus Christ, we must not be trapped by the presuppositions of this world. Our faith confirmed by the works of God that we see all around us. If only we will look, that faith will carry us above and beyond the short existence of life on this decaying planet. And so may our faith be in Jesus Christ, not in the presuppositions of Carl Sagan. For this, friends, this life is not all there ever will be. A faith with a beginning, a persistent faith, a trusting, obedient, and working faith, and a faith that is confirmed as we look to the evidence of God's work all around us. All of this then takes us to the fifth and final stage of a faith that will help us experience true life. And that is a witnessing faith. A witnessing faith. Let's notice two distinctives as we begin to to wrap this up. This royal official, this man, went home and he witnessed the text says, to all his household. That means he told them about the experience, the word of promise and the instructions that Jesus had given. And it says then that they all believed. They all believed. They all committed themselves to the work and the plan and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I want us to note that Witnessing for Jesus was likely not easy for this man. He was 
a high official in a pagan government, moving about in the halls of a corrupt culture among immoral leaders and officials. If it became known that he was following this rabbi named Jesus, he would definitely be facing ridicule, persecution, maybe lose his position, and perhaps even his life. But I want you to see that his faith was a witnessing faith. He loved Jesus for what Jesus had done for him, and he wanted others to know Jesus' glorious salvation. The man did not just believe and then go on with life. No, he shared his faith. He shared his faith with everyone in his household. And I imagine it went beyond the household. You see, friends, our faith in Christ cannot be kept a secret. It can't. Because part of the stages that we work through is that we come to this point of sharing, of witnessing that faith, especially with our family and those who know us well. See, our faith should compel us to share with others the work that God has done in our lives. Well, you know, in the elite world of world-class scientists in the field of uh, particle physics, announcements this dramatic are rare. This particular announcement was made on July 4th, 2012. And it was so big that more than a thousand scientists stood in line all night long to get into the room where the announcement would be made. You would think they were going to a, a pop concert, but they weren't. They were there to hear the head of the coolest new toy in the world of particle physics, the $10 billion Large Hadron Collider that straddles the border between France and Switzerland. And they were there to hear this man who was about to give what many anticipated would be a groundbreaking pronouncement about the discovery of what is believed to be what is called the Higgs boson particle. Although one MIT scientist cautioned, we still do not yet understand the nature of this new particle. You see, this subatomic particle had been theorized for over 50 years, but it had never been seen, never measured, never proven. And yet it is so fundamental in the shaping of the universe that even some scientists have called it the God particle. Well, an article in the New York Times about the Higgs boson announcement had this to say. Confirmation of the Higgs boson, or something very much like it, would constitute a rendezvous with destiny for a generation of physicists who have believed in the boson for half a century without ever seeing it. Isn't that interesting? You know what we call that? We call it faith. Faith. These scientists have believed in something they cannot see and previously had been unable to prove. They had believed in the unproven particle because what they could see had convinced them that it had to be there. And so it is, friends. 
that those of us who profess faith in Christ believe in the unseen God whom we cannot prove exists, but we know he exists because what we can see reveals his power and his divine nature. It is not irrational to believe in God. On the contrary, nothing could be more rational. And you see, friends, that is true life. These stages we work through bring us to true life, and that is to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ, and to trust and obey and take the actions that are laid out in his gospel plan. Now each of us will move between these stages of faith in our life. And as we do, we will see that he is still performing miracles in our lives today. I hope that you believe that. Well, John concludes this encounter with this unnamed royal official by making this simple statement in verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The second sign. And so as we conclude today, I want to ask you this question. Friends, what will you do with the signs of Jesus? Where will his signs lead you? May we prayerfully consider where we are in this series of the stages of faith. And may we each experience true life in Jesus. Let's pray together.